This is uh, Matthew Part 1, Lesson 0, Introduction. Today is August 4th, 2007. On the the board here I have Baruch Shamar. And uh, y'all be quiet while while I pray. Blessed is he who spoke, and the world came into being. Blessed is he. Blessed is he who maintains creation. Blessed is he who speaks and does. Blessed is he who decrees and fulfills. Blessed is he who has mercy on the earth. Blessed is he who has mercy on the creatures. Blessed is he who gives goodly reward to those who fear him. Blessed is he who lives forever and endures to eternity. Blessed is he who redeems and rescues. Blessed is his name. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, the God, the merciful Father, who is lauded by the mouth of his people, praised and glorified by the tongue of his devout ones and his servants. And through the Psalms of David, your servant, we shall laud you, Lord our God, with praises and songs. We shall exalt you, praise you, glorify you, mention your name, and proclaim your reign, our King, our God. O unique one, life giver of the worlds, King whose great name is eternally praised and glorified, blessed are you, Lord, the King who is lauded with praises. And everyone says, Amen. That's from uh, the morning prayers, and you'll forgive me, I think I read for the, from the work weekday, but uh, that's from the morning prayers, uh, and it's really the way that we begin prayer. Why? Why would I care about he who spoke in the relationship to my prayer life? Doesn't he just want to listen to me? No. Although he likes to to listen to me. Our study in in Matthew is going to be studying what God spoke. Uh, We could start in Genesis. We could start anywhere and do the same thing. But what God spoke... When we talk about God's word, we need to always understand that we have, he has preserved for us his words written through human agents, preserved by godly men for us. But in reading and understanding his words, we understand that there's far more than simply recognizing or uh, studying every little detail, but that the very words themselves, the very words themselves are life-changing, provided that we apply them and take them to heart. Uh, one of the reasons why I provide an, a, a workbook, homework for people who want to participate, not to, not to diminish people that don't want to participate in homework, but the reason that I do is because all of us need some sort of participation sometimes, in some way, and this is just my way of providing something that you can participate in. In the looking up of Scripture, I've said it before and I'll continue to say it, the thing that's most important is not what we say or what we think Scripture says. The most important thing is the very words themselves, even the letters of the words. I'm a firm believer in it. It's not a weird thing to me. It may be mystic, but it's not weird to me. That The very letters and the spaces between the letters are powerful and good. God intends us to live our lives based upon the words that he spoke and it's why the morning prayers begin with blessing him who spoke from your outline let thy house be a meeting place for the wise powder thyself in the dust of their feet and drink their words with eagerness that's Yosef ben uh, Yosef 
Uh, Yose, he lived a couple hundred years uh, before uh, Yeshua was born. Um, he was basing this idea of powdering your, yourself in the dust of the feet of the wise, uh, a master, uh, as teachers would sit at his feet, follow him around from place to place, listen to him teach. This is the job of a disciple to be powdered in the dust of the feet of our master which means that we are so intimate with him so intimate in his words the things that he spoke the life that he lived and lives that it becomes our pattern for our lives the words that we speak are the words that he spoke to be covered in his dust means that you are a good disciple and that's what we're talking about this, uh, this entire, uh, through this entire book of Matthew is about discipleship to the king uh, and from Luke chapter 6 verse 40 this is Yeshua speaking a Talmud a disciple is not above his teacher but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher we talk about being like Messiah you need to recognize that being like Messiah is not something that mystically happens to you because you raised your hand or walked an aisle or said a, or said a prayer being a disciple being a good disciple being perfectly trained does not happen overnight it takes work being a disciple takes work it is something that we recognize that uh, comes difficultly that's why it says trained Yeshua our master the perfect one was trained he had to endure as well Understand that if he had to endure and be trained, then all how much more do we have to be trained? And Matthew 28, these are his words as well. And Yeshua came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make Talmudim, disciples of all the nations, immersing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. What he, what he is saying here, and we're going to talk about it in depth when we get to the end, part three of Matthew, this, this passage has been, I believe, largely misunderstood. In fact, I, th- I believe, personally, completely misunderstood. This is not a great commission. This is, not the, uh, this is not the starting place. This is the ending place. You, as a disciple of Yeshua, this is the ending place. You must first be trained. You must first be covered in his dust before you are, you are ready to make disciples for him. Unfortunately, what we have is we have a world that has, uh, uh, for a long time, gone out and thought this was their first task. doesn't mean that you can't be a witness today or tomorrow. But what you need to understand is, oftentimes, you're just simply making disciples for yourself or for someone else if you do. If you're not trying to be like him, at the same time. Some of the reasons why the Gospels were written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, three of those Gospels are what we call synoptic Gospels because they follow the same, same pattern. Uh, we, we, Matthew, Mark, and Luke follow the same pattern. John is, a, John is one out there that's different. So the synoptic Gospels, those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar. We find similar stories in, the, in them. John is, is, is different. 
But all of the Gospels were written for this reason, to provide, or some of these reasons, uh, to provide a body of quotes for Yeshua and teaching for Yeshua's disciples. We're gonna, when we talk about disciples, and in your workbook, if you have a workbook, if you don't, we're not going to make you feel bad about it, but if you have a workbook, and if you're going to do the study, and you're going to spend the time, an hour each day, probably, or each week in preparation, uh, in advance of every, uh, every week, so next week we'll be talking about Lesson 1, so this week you would study uh, the scriptures that are contained in Lesson 1. If you decide to do this, and if you, do, if you participate in this, one of the things that you're going to see is we're going to learn about discipleship, and we're going to talk about it in, in, in our discussion time as well. But to be a disciple, one of the things that is required for a disciple is to know what his master said. Uh, Jewish extant literature is full of this, full of it. You know, it's interesting for us because we think we know what disciples are. But let me tell you something. If you haven't studied Jewish history or Jewish literature, you really don't. Because that, it's a Jewish thing. I'm sorry, it just is. has been for 2,500 years. It's thoroughly Jewish. And understanding discipleship is very important in that context. And one of the things that is required for disciples is to know what their master said. Because you quote him. Okay? So, it provides a body of quotes. The gospels provide these body of quotes. Sayings that he said. Because he's the wise one. He's the wisest one. It's also to affirm there's a continuity between the Hebrew scriptures and the beliefs of the early believers in Yeshua. One of the things that you find interesting, and right in that prayer about Rukh Shamar, we, 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 heard, uh, um, we heard a... Uh, um, <coughs> The idea that 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 uh, that he spoke and it was fulfilled, and you're going to see that again and again as we go through Matthew that he spoke and it was fulfilled. When we hear the word fulfilled, what we think is check it off. Like God has a checklist upstairs that he's simply going down the list. Okay, I said this would happen. Check that off. I said this would happen. Check that off. And as you read through Matthew and all the Gospels, you may be tempted to do the same thing. That is completely false. Fulfilled does not mean checked off. Fulfilled means I told you in advance and here it is. It's present tense. It's not past tense. What we have been taught, if you, especially if you've been raised in a traditional Christian home or church, we've been taught that Jesus fulfilled, checked off things. That's done with. We don't need to think about it anymore. That is absolutely false. This is not about trying to find a witness. See, you can go to people and go, see, he said it ahead of time. See, this is what happened. That's not what it's about. It's about a lifestyle. It's about a life that's immersed in Him. And our study, as we go through Matthew, is going to be an excursion. It's kind of historical. I hope you don't mind, because that's kind of how we understand cultural things. It's best to understand it in a first century context. So I provide a little bit of insight into that cultural thing that's happening in the first century to help us to better understand and follow him more closely what it is to really be a disciple. The first century context, talk about this. Apostolic scriptures, or some people call it the New Testament. Those of you who know me know why I don't call it the New Testament. Not that it's wrong, you can call it that if you like. The reason I call it the apostolic scriptures is because it's not new. And it's not a, it's not a testament. It's not a covenant. There is no covenants found. There are no covenants found in the New Testament. Not one. The New Covenant is first found, actually, in Genesis chapter 3. But if you really want to be technical, uh, uh, it's first mentioned, uh, not as New Covenant, but it's implied in Deuteronomy 30, which is part of the Torah. And it's first named by name, the New Covenant, in Jeremiah 31. It is named by name as well in, in, the, in the Apostolic Scriptures, but that's not where it's introduced. And it's not a covenant. It is the description of our Master, His teachings, and His first disciples. They're apostles, sent twice. 
So that's including Yeshua, the sent one. So, because of that, that's why I call it apostolic scriptures. Often we read it through 1,800 years of bias. Uh, when I say bias, we all are biased, so don't think it's a bad word necessarily. We try to undo our bias as best we can. We can't. So we have all have biases. So it's very understandable where people have not been exposed, have not tried to undo their bias, that they see things in a certain way. We're going to attempt. We won't be successful. I can promise we won't. But we're going to attempt to undo our own personal biases and the biases of 1,800 years of people who, some of which, actually despise the Jewish people. A book that they study called the Bible, written in my, in my view, but even if you didn't take my view, except for one, entirely by Jewish people. I would say Luke is Jewish, but that's my own personal. Entirely by Jewish people. And yet they despise the very ones that they... They gave us the oracles of God. How precious should the Jewish people be to everyone who loves God? Uh, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Uh, in the early 2nd century, there were some who began to, in their despising of the Jewish people, began to teach a new teaching. It, it, it was a new teaching. Certainly it was an old teaching because it came from the garden. Uh, anything that God does, uh, the enemy tries to oppose uh, all the way through history. Amalek, Haman, Haman. Uh, others have, have tried to undo, had tried to destroy the Jewish people and the, because in doing so they destroy the Messiah. But what we know is that after they... Uh, after some of these people received the Messiah as, as a gift from God, they attempted to then take him away from the Jewish people. Marcion was a perfect example. Marcion took the words of Paul and created a whole new Bible. Uh, in fact, he despised what he called the Old Testament. Uh, he despised the Gospels. Actually, he rewrote one of them, Luke. That, other than that, Paul and Luke, he didn't want anything to do with anybody else. Why, why, why Paul? Because Paul's easy to twist. Paul writes in a style that seems to be easy to mis- it's, it's easy to easy to misunderstand. Peter tells us Paul writes difficult things. It's easy to misunderstand. Marcion did that. Unfortunately, he was he was branded a heretic, but unfortunately, the early church actually adopted most of his theology. And what we have is we have we have this idea that Jesus came and started a new religion. You hear people, you've heard people, you may have taught people. It was before the cross and after the cross. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Everybody mentioned was long dead. They were dust by the time that Yeshua was born. And yet they are the only ones listed as people of faith. There's no change. There's no old and new. They're simply God's way, period. From the beginning, always the same. Luke 18, chapter 25 is a perfect example of this misunderstanding. Go to Luke. Why are we reading from Matthew? Because you haven't read Matthew yourself yet. <laughs> Maybe you've read it before, but you're going to read it again. We'll talk about each chapter after we've, after we've done some time studying it ahead of time. Go to Luke chapter 18, verse 25. You've, you've heard this. For it is easier, this is Yeshua speaking, Actually, go up to verse 24. And when, when Yeshua saw that, he be, saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? I've heard people say that. What's that? Is it now or is it later? <laughs> if you read, if you read the Talmud, you'll see the kingdom of God is an often discussed topic. 
and there's nobody scratching their head over it. Everybody thinks they know what they're talking about. We're going we're gonna to see that this is a very, very, <coughs> very Jewish concept, the kingdom of God. Uh, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In the 5th century, Jerome, living in the land of Israel, translating the scriptures from Hebrew in, and Greek into Latin, heard a story. He conveyed this story. There used to be a gate in Jerusalem. It was called the Eye of the Needle. It was a small gate. Only a camel that had been unloaded could go through the Eye of the Needle into Jerusalem. So unburdening itself was the only way in. So for a rich man to get into heaven, he had to unburden himself from his wealth. This is nonsense. First of all, camels didn't enter Jerusalem. There are seven gates in Jerusalem, none named Eye of the Needle. This is a myth. We've been taught it. People have repeated it. It's in books. It's nonsense. All they had to do is pick up any any Jewish extant text from the period and find this was a common metaphor. What is an eye of a, ne- a, a needle passing through an eye of a needle, or a, or or, uh, a, or excuse me, a camel going through the eye of a needle, or in the Talmud it says an elephant passing through an eye of a needle? What is it? It's something hard to do. <laughs> That's it. It's hard to do. In fact, it seems impossible. The problem is everybody has focused on it's easier for a camel, and coming up with their little metaphor, the little analogy to teach that you have to be ascetic, aesthetic, aesthetic. An aesthetic to be aesthetic to be a believer. That's nonsense. That's just nonsense. Look at the next verse as the focus. The focus was not that verse. It's the next verse. And those are excuse me, two verses. And those who heard it said, Who can then can be saved? And he said, The things which are possible when men are possible with God. That was the point. His point had nothing to do with unburdening themselves from wealth. Although this story tells about a man who was too wealthy that he would not that he loved his wealth more than God. But the point that wasn't the point. The point was what? Why is it too hard for a rich man? Because if it's up to men, we'll never get there. <laughs> That's the story. But do you understand how not knowing that not knowing that idiom can completely twist the story? This the gospels are full of idioms full of them you have to understand it you have to know the language or you don't know anything you think you know it and you don't just because it's written in English and you know the words does not mean that you understand it I'm not saying you don't understand it but my point is that if you are not willing to discover what language he was speaking in and what was the common way of speaking then you're not going you're not going to know what he said you may think you understand it and you won't. That's a scary thought when you think about it. It really is. That's why I'm passionate about understanding Yeshua as he is given to us in scriptures. As it was written down by holy men of old, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for us to know. But if you're not willing to be a disciple, you can read it and it reads like a nice story. It reads like a nice religion. But you still may not know. When Yeshua 
When we follow Yeshua and teaching his message, we must attempt to see and hear him as his first century disciples did. Now, I've heard people say, listen, we have to be dynamic. You know, God isn't stuck in the first century. We have to be dynamic. And I, I, I believe that. But one of the things I also believe is the ancient paths are the right paths. God didn't come up with, he doesn't constantly come up with new ways. He comes up with ways to speak that you will understand. That's true. God speaks the language of men. But if we're unwilling to take, take the, the effort to bear the cost of the disciple, then the language he speaks will simply be uh, what we want to hear. Satisfy our ears, not necessarily what he, what he wants to convey. The question that I have here on this next point was, are we making disciples for ourselves or for Yeshua? If we are to raise up disciples as Yeshua, we must understand what the first century understanding of disciples was. We really do. Apostolic Judaism. This is, the, this, is, uh, this is our faith. Some might call it Christianity. That's fine. I have no problem with that. I am a Christian. In the sense that... I can identify with those who called themselves Christians, or were called, rather more importantly, in the scriptures. To identify with everyone that's ever called themselves a Christian, I would say absolutely not. The word's not bad. We need to be very careful as Messianics how we use it. Because oftentimes we're conveying the exact opposite of what we intend. And that's why we don't use the word. That's why I don't use the word in describing myself. I call myself a messianic. A lot of people don't understand that, but it gives me an opportunity to explain it. (laughs) What am I really? I'm a follower of Yeshua, and that's really the bottom line. That's all that matters. Call myself a believer. You know, anybody can believe anything. (laughs) Call myself a believer, but I am a follower of Yeshua. That is the the bottom line. But apostolic Judaism is is a nomenclature that's been given to the first century believers of Yeshua because they were 100% Jewish, all of them. First, until late in the first century. Often the tenets of Judaism are misrepresented. Perfect example. You know how Jews, they're all about salvation by works, right? Wrong. That's absolutely wrong. You know, that's what every religion accuses every other religion of. <laughs> it's true. Why is that? Because we know that it's wrong for people to try and earn God's favor by being good. Right? Everybody knows that. Well, most people know that. Of Many religions know that. So everybody accuses everybody of doing it. Not to say that some don't. They do. But you need to understand, Judaism is not. You will not find that. Because there is a stress on keeping the commandments, that is not working for salvation. Because here's the bottom line. Jewish, Jewish theology says all Jews are saved. Period. Period. You have to undo it by being really, really bad. <laughs> Every time, we, we study Perkevot, the ethics or the chapters of the fathers uh, during the summer months. In the summer months, uh, the ethics of the fathers, you start every chapter by, by quoting from Isaiah. All Israel has a part, in the, actually it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a paraphrase from Isaiah. All Israel has a part in the world to come. Because all your people are saved. That's what it says, Isaiah said. All your people shall be righteous. You know, the, the idea that... Jews work for their salvation, quotation marks, is nonsense. They, never, they would never say that. Of course not. And Yeshua, and Yeshua was not trying to undo anything that they aren't understood at that time either. What was he doing? That's the real contest. I've told you this before. The contest in the Gospels is not between works and faith. That's nonsense. The contest in the Gospels is not between works and faith. Pharisees and real believers. No. Absolutely false. Paul remained a Pharisee all his life. What is the contest? 
There is a contest. There is a fight going on. There is a fight that can be described many different ways and many different facets. It's a fight within Judaism itself. But there's a fight. There's a fight between the forces of darkness and the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. That's the fight. It's not works and faith. This, this idea you need to be able to see not all of those who ask Yeshua questions in the Gospels are against him that's the way that you learn you ask you ask questions good disciples always ask questions good masters always answer questions by asking another question people think Yeshua is being cagey or shifty or maybe not wanting to tell the people what they need to hear he's asking it in a very Yeshiva style he hears a question he answers with another question in Luke we hear that he is raised up and in the temple he's, uh, he's a wise young man at age, uh, age 12 he's asking questions and everybody's astonished by his answers well that's exactly the way you pose a position you ask a question and people go hmm, that's an interesting thought uh, we don't do it enough honestly it's a great way to teach it's a great way to teach I'm, I'm not a very good teacher that way there are three types of, of, of uh, Judaism in the first century Yeshua's theology our theology is most if we want to call it that and I, I avoid the word usually uh, it's aligned more closely with the Pharisees than anyone else and guess who the modern descendants of the Pharisees are the Orthodox Jew. The Orthodox Jew's theology is more closely aligned with Orthodox, and I'm going to be careful how to say it, but Orthodox Christian theology than anyone can imagine. It's embarrassing how, how oriented they are together. That's right. That's right. You go online. I took a quiz recently. You go online and it figures out what you are by asking you a bunch of quest- theological questions. All the religions of the world are represented. I was shocked. You know what it said I was? It said I was about 60% Orthodox Jew and about 40% fundamentalist Christian. (laughs) Now, how can that be possible when the world has presented them as polar opposites? Isn't that something? Yeah. I'm preaching to the choir. You guys, you guys know this. Preaching to the choir. That's a Christian idiom, right? <laughs> See, if you didn't live in, the, in this century, you may not, you may not understand that. Uh, go to, go to uh, the, the Pharisees actually save Yeshua's life at various points throughout the Gospels. You need to very, very understand, understand that, that in Matthew's use of the word Pharisee, he's not blanketing all Pharisees. He's not putting all Pharisees there. We're going to look at it. When we, get to, when we get to Matthew chapter 23, 24, and 25, but especially chapter 23, you're going you're gonna to be dumbfounded at what he says about the Pharisees. Because everybody reads it and goes, boy, those Pharisees are some bad people. But he starts his criticism of them by saying, do what they say. If we were good disciples, please don't misunderstand this. I'm just giving you a rhetorical question. If we were good disciples, would we obey what the rabbis say? That's who the Pharisees are. How many people who call themselves followers of Jesus obey what the rabbis say? He says, do what they say, don't do what they do. In other words, some, some are hypocrites. But he does say, do what they say. They don't obey him. They don't obey the rabbis. But that's what our master said we should do. 
I'm just posing a rhetorical question. Why is that? Go to Acts chapter 3. I told you this was an intro lesson. Obviously, we're not looking at Matthew much. Acts chapter 3. Verse 18 says, we're in 18 through 25, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of his prophets that Messiah would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now, what, is, what do people hear when they read fulfilled? They think, checked off, done away with, wrong. He keeps fulfilling. He keeps fulfilling. It's present tense. Repent, therefore, and be converted to new religion, right? No. You heard this in Hebrew? It's called, under the, under the noun, teshuva. <laughs> teshuva. Repent. Turn around. It's a very Jewish thing. That your sins may be blotted out. And do you know something? Judaism today teaches that sins are blotted out by teshuva. Repentance. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send... Yeshua Messiah who has preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things may it be soon in our days y'all may it be now restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began it's not a new thing it's an old thing it's an ancient thing before time began he knew he planned it all for Moses truly said to the fathers the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to do uh, says to you and it shall be that every soul who did not who will not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people yes and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow as many as have spoken all have also foretold these days you are sons of the prophet and the covenant of God made with your fathers saying to Abraham and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed we need to understand that this idea that 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 uh, something happened in the first century it wasn't the creation of a new religion. It was a reformation of the religion that had always been there. It was a reorienting. It was a time for revival. Uh, this message that he speaks of, this, uh, and he goes all the way back to talking about Moses and Abraham. Why? Moses is our teacher. He's the prophet sent from God. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where he's quoting from, Deuteronomy 18, what it says is, in the same way I gave you Moses, I'll give you a prophet. Listen to him. If we cast Yeshua, if some would cast Jesus as opposed to Moses, they're speaking a lie. Moses is not a bad person. Moses is the pattern by which we identify and know Messiah. Because it says, a prophet like Moses, a prophet like you, a prophet like me, as Moses was speaking. God will send a prophet like me. You want to know. And that, by the way, you read the book of Acts, this, is, this pattern is used three times. Stephen does it as well. Right? Here was Moses, here's Yeshua. Look, they're like, they're like each other. What we've been taught, if you were raised in a traditional Christian Understanding, You've been taught that Moses is an opposed. He was a good guy, but that was before the cross. Now, 
That was the old teaching. Now we have a new teaching. Moses and Yeshua taught the same message. I did. What is it? To approach God, to fellowship with God, you must come His way. One way. And Yeshua said, what way is it? I don't know. What did Moses teach? Hebrews chapter 11 says, he knew, he understood, he understood Messiah. He knew, he knew what he was teaching. And what he wrote down was not his words. They were the words that God gave him to write down. God spoke and he wrote. Calling it the Torah of Moses is not incorrect. It's called that throughout scripture. Understanding that it comes from him and what some people apply when they say that. Oh, the law of Moses. No. <laughs> it's the law of God. That's right. That's why traditionally when the Torah is, is after the Torah reading and it's being held up, pointing, well, with a little finger, excuse me, because we don't want to be rude. <laughs> pointing. This is the Torah. This is. These are the words that God gave Moses, our teacher. Why is that important? Because God spoke. It's the foundation for our, our existence. He spoke. As we study... Actually, go to Luke 14 real quick and we'll finish up here. Actually, go back. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. I, I skipped a step, stop here. Uh, Acts 21. Go to uh, Acts 21, verse 20. Uh, and I don't want to press this point... Uh, too much, but uh, with, with a group like this, this is not something I, I, I taught this. I've taught this other places. This is a group like this. I don't have to explain a lot. Uh, so this is not going to come as a shock to you. But uh, Acts chapter twenty-one, it would come as a shock to some people. Acts twenty-one, verse twenty. And when they heard it, they, they're, they're listening to Paul speaking about his ministry among the Gentiles. And when they heard it, uh, this is in Jerusalem. They glorified the Lord, and they said to him, "See." You see, brother, how many myriads, that means tens of thousands, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. Okay, well, I thought they'd get away with the law. No, absolutely not. If he had done away with the law, he wouldn't be Messiah. But they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them. Be purified with them. Pay their expenses that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself walk orderly and keep the law. If you read the book of Galatians as the way it's written in English... That is absolutely the opposite of what you just read. Paul remained a Pharisee, remained a temple Jew. He offered sacrifices. That's what's being described here. He offered sacrifices in the temple. What was he thinking? As some would say. What's the picture here? What we see is we see something completely different. We have believed the false accusation against Paul that he forsook Moses. That's a false accusation. The same accusation was leveled against Stephen. The same accusation was leveled against our master, Yeshua. This is a false accusation. Why do we believe the enemies of our master and his disciples? We should not believe our, those enemies of them. They're offering a false 
false picture of who they are, what they did. We need to be very careful that what we understand is that, that what, what, was, what was given, the faith of the fathers, Paul included, and those who were presenting the gospel of Messiah were teaching repentance. It wasn't a new religion. It was about discipleship. That they had to be discipled, disciples of Yeshua. That everyone needed to be a disciple of Yeshua. That, that Messiah had come. And that relationship with God was eternally possible through Him. That's, that's new. Oh yes, that's new in the sense that now you know His name. But it's not new. From the very beginning, God had said this was the way that it was going to be. When you read the book of Matthew and it says, and this was fulfilled so that, that's what you're reading. You're reading, God's putting his signature of approval on Yeshua. But not to say, okay, I did it, now you know who he is. But to say that you continue to follow him because what he did, he's doing. He's, he continues to live the life that he lived before his death and resurrection. We talk about discipleship. When discipleship is cast in this Greek model, you know, uh, Plato had disciples, Socrates had disciples. When we cast it in that, we have a totally different view of what it is to be a disciple. That's why people could think that Jerome's idea, the rich people all had to, you know, go and live in a monastery in order to be a disciple. That's nonsense. Discipleship is a daily experience that everyone can live. Everyone that chooses to live as a disciple, by faith, can live as a disciple, period. You don't have to, you don't have to move into a monastery. Discipleship in the first century. Judaism was very, very familiar with it. And we're going to see that as we do it. They've been doing it for hundreds of years already. In fact, you could say that, because, because many of the sages said this, that Aaron raised up disciples. Thank you very much. Luke chapter 14, and then we're going to close. These are sobering words. The red letters in many of our English Bibles, my Bible has red letters in it. Those are the words of Yeshua. The red letters are the strongest, scariest words that you will read in this book. The words from Sinai were scary. His are scarier. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 said. If Sinai shook you to your boots, then how much more will Messiah's words shake you to your boots? The red letters are hard words. Read just those and you ought to be a little bit fearful. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Oh, I didn't have the right place to that. Oh, is that the right place? Okay. Uh, start with verse 26. Then you will begin to say, We ate and we drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north, from the south, sit down at the kingdom of God and indeed there are last who will be first and first who will be last. That's not what I was looking for, but that was very good too. <laughs> That's scary too. <laughs> he says the same thing in Matthew chapter 7. It's very scary. Uh, I apologize. Pardon me? If anyone comes to me and does not hate That's it. Father and That's it. Where was that? I don't know where you are. I'm in 13. 13 was good, too. Here's 14, 26. You see, this is why I need you guys. 
I'm not shy and I'm not embarrassed. Uh, then he said to him, a certain... Now, tell me I'm reading the right place here. No, here it is. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, this is what I wanted, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's scary. Guess what? If you're not his disciple, you do not have a part in the world to come. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intends to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, Whoever of you does not forsake all that he all cannot that he has cannot be my disciple. So Jerome was wrong. It's not just rich men that have a difficulty in the kingdom of heaven because they have to unburden themselves from wealth. It's all of us. This is these are hard words. What is it to be a disciple? You know, discipleship is hard. It is hard. It is very hard. It's why a lot of people who claim to be believers are not disciples. It's because it's hard. The common message you hear from most pulpits in America is not the message of discipleship. When we study, it is the responsibility of every student, every disciple to study. When we study, as Tommy Dean do, we study that study knows every word and is every deed. We study to pattern our lives after him. He's our master and we have no other, we can have no other master. Like us, the first century hearers of Yeshua assumed they knew that they please, they knew that they were doing things to please God. They studied the scriptures, they knew that they worshiped God as he commanded. Yeshua came and called them to what they had missed in all the doing. A holy relationship. He showed them that by doing, that doing was always about a holy relationship. It's always about a holy relationship. We need to be doing things, but we need to understand that doing is about relationship. It's not the doing in and of itself. People approach scripture generally anachronistically. They look at it as if it were written in their time. We need to be careful not to do that. It applies to us today, but it's ancient. And we need to see it as the ancient times it was written. We've opted for experience over relationship. It's time for God's people everywhere to hear the message of his word. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. You're going to read that again and again in Matthew. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the gospel message. So, my question, rhetorical, because you're here. What will it be? Religion or relationship? Membership or discipleship? Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you have given us the opportunity to know you. We've given, you've given us the opportunity to be the disciples of Emmanuel, God with us, of Yeshua, Messiah. Oh, that we may be covered with the dust from his feet. Fill us. Fulfill in us all that you desire as disciples of Messiah. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.